I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Rowenta. Yes, I host The Goop Podcast and run the goop.com content team, but I'm first and foremost a mom of two boys. There isn't a ton of room on my plate for such domestic extravagances as, say, ironing, which is where the Rowenta handheld steamer comes in. The 1,600-watt steam flow gets wrinkles out of shirts, dresses, and pants with just a few flicks of the wrist. The steamer works both vertically and horizontally on any fabric, so all I have to do is lay out our clothes on the bed and go to town. You can shop the Rowenta handheld steamer on goop.com. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. Jennifer is a legend at the mega entertainment and media company WME. After selling her own company to the William Morris Agency, Jennifer became the first woman on their board of directors, a position she kept when the company merged with Endeavor. Now she's the worldwide head of WME's literary, lectures, and conference divisions. She represents some of Goop's favorite authors, like Laurel and Jackson, Barry Michaels, and Phil Stutz. And she's behind some of the biggest names in the game, including Alice Monroe, Brene Brown, and Oprah Winfrey. The one thing that I would say about all the people that I have like the great honor of representing in this world is that everybody that I represent is who they say they are. I, I only represent people who are the same in every room, who bring their whole self to every situation. Our chief content officer, Elise Lunin, sat down with Jennifer to talk about how to attract talent, the role she plays in driving culture, and how we can make our current climate a more diverse and compelling one. What if I just assume the most respectful reason for every single thing that everybody does? And what if I don't take your silence to mean something about me, but instead just send you all the love in the world? After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. How did you start? Can you? What's the inception story of, of... So my inception story. So I wasn't that kid with my nose in the books. In fact, I failed out of high school. I was asked to leave in the middle of my junior year because the school said that nobody would recommend me to college. Like, I had literally failed to distinguish myself to the point where they were like, nah, it's a private school, but nobody's going to recommend you. So I got to a different school where the headmistress there got that my mother had no control over me and decided to pay me a dollar a day for every day I would come to school. So a young agent was born. I didn't realize it, but that's what happened. (laughs) So she really gave me the respect of putting my own life back in order. And she gave me a dollar a day, which back in the 1800s when I was in school was enough to, you know, basically buy a pizza and a Coke every day. And she promised me that if I came to school every day, she would find a college that would see beyond my bad grades and my, my really truant record of not going to school. And so I kept my end of the bargain. She kept her end of the bargain. And she found Kenyon College for me. And when I got to Kenyon... I discovered contemporary voices in literature. I mean, I literally didn't know that alive people wrote books. I just thought dead white dudes were the only people that wrote books. And my freshman year, I discovered Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and Kim Chernin, and I just was utterly and completely blown away. 
And I didn't know it at that time, but my calling was calling. I just couldn't get enough. And when I got to the part, a part of my college education that I wanted to start doing internships, I found an internship at a literary agency. And she ended up hiring me to work full time from my dorm room my senior year in, high, in college. And then I graduated like on a Saturday and started working for her that Monday. And I ultimately bought that company and then sold it eventually to William Morris that then merged with Endeavor. So I basically had one job my whole life. That's amazing. So you didn't want to, like, you weren't inspired to write. You just wanted to revel no, in the creation. No, I love authors, but I pity them. I, I really do. I pity them. <laughs> I, I Listen, I thank God for them, but I would never want to be one. So, but you wanted to be part of the process. Desperately. The, the jockey, the... The midwife, the, the pilot light, the amplifier. I mean... You know, I just want to shine the light for other people as far and wide as humanly possible. I want to build the largest mountain and the biggest megaphone. And so you have a preternatural ability to do this. I mean, every I think Goop is amazing at discovering people. And then invariably, we reach out, they're undiscovered, and they're like, oh, I've been talking to Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. It's like you... I don't does it, is it your gut like how do you find talent well it's yes it is my gut but what i like to say is that there are thought there are thought leaders in this world and god bless them but i'm a, an excellent thought follower and i and i think that people are underrating it's like the first follower like people underrate thought followership and what i can follow more than anything like my if i have one little secret secret superhero weapon it's that i know what truth sounds like and i can hear it like a whisper in the night and, and, and I recognize it like my sister in a crowd. I mean, it's just crazy. So I don't look for talent. I mean, it just, it, it just, it finds me. And as soon as I hear it, as soon as I feel it, I know it. And I, and I, I know exactly what to do to amplify it. It's amazing. So it's just, it's that resonance that I know Oprah, who, of course, is a Jennifer Rudolph Walsh client. She talks about like that moment of truth of like, I see you. This is my experience. Yeah. You matter. I see this. I recognize this. And it takes the personal to the universal in a way that it seems like it's easy to do until you try to do it, you know. And then you realize that it's an incredible feat to make it look easy. And and it comes from the most authentic, wholehearted expression of experience, of self, of expertise, of, of whatever it is. And that wholeheartedness, that brave truth-telling, it's just been my – that's been my true north. And do you think working with some of the most incredible minds of the day, where do you see it in them? Do you see them as channels? Like, how do you, how do you, what do you see? Well, the one thing that I would say about all the people that I have, like, the great honor of representing in this world is that everybody that I represent is who they say they are. Hmm. I, I only represent people who are the same in every room, who bring their whole self to every situation. I mean, whether you're talking about Oprah, who you just mentioned, or Brene Brown, or Sheryl Sandberg, or Ariana Huffington, or Sumon Kidd, or Alice Monroe, any of the people that you might bring up, I'll tell you that if you were in their kitchen, you would recognize the same person that you see accepting the, the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that essential truth of self is so important to me. And I'm, I'm incredibly mission-based, but my mission a lot of times is helping other people amplify their mission. But as soon as I... I even sense like a falseness. I'm I'm gone. I mean, everybody hates phonies, but I really fucking hate phonies. Like I can't do it. I don't know how people do it. Oh, am I allowed to curse on this end? Yeah, okay. go crazy. Okay, good. Let them fly. Um, I love the way I ask after the fact. Um, but I really hate them, and I can't deal with it. And I don't even understand. Like I try to get to the compassionate place. Like I try to be like, oh, feel bad for them. But I just literally want to say, what are you hiding? Mm-hmm. What what's going on? 
Mm-hmm. What do you think is so is so is so horrifying that if you told the truth, people wouldn't wouldn't want to know you? And the truth is, if you told the truth, people would be connected to you. They would be drawn to you. They would say, "Me too." Mm-hmm. I mean, back to the you know the me too thing. I mean, it's just you hear something that's true and you shake your head in recognition and you realize that you're not the only one, or your sister's not the only one, or your best friend's not the only one. There's a very human tendency to assume one that you're special, right? That like your your experience is singular and complex, whereas it is that simple. It's it all boils seems to boil down to like the same basic buckets. Totally, we all want the same thing. We want to be seen. We want to know that our story matters. We want to feel like we have a value. Every single person wants the same thing. We want love. Yes. We want to feel safe. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So considering the role you take in, in being the doula and the megaphone and all of those things, like how do you – is there a part of it that come when you think about the culture and you're looking ahead, like voices that need to be heard more? Like are you actively – Absolutely. Without question. I mean I'm, I'm almost – exclusively focused now on the intersectional opportunities that storytelling gives us. So whether it's putting them on the stage of our of our together our together tour or publishing them or putting them in podcasts, I want every voice, I want every single person to feel like they have been represented. So you know, I'm looking for trans voices, for voices of people who are disabled, obviously black and brown voices. Anything that I can possibly think of, I want to make sure that it is equally represented in the marketplace. And why I was talking about this earlier today and and about how media in general is typically dominated often by white women. I mean, magazine publishing in particular who are can afford to take a lower salary. Like, how do we and then that just percolates, right? So how does that how does that start to change? Well, I mean, it's it has to change it from the, it has to come from the top down and the down and the bottom up. So, just for an example, at our com- our company, culture is hu- hugely important to me and hugely important to the people that run our company. But it used to be that when we hired somebody who didn't have the ability to basically be be supported by their parents, the way that we we stepped into that into that breach was by calling it a hardship. Like literally somebody who needed to make a fair living wage, we called that a hardship case. And just even that language around that is just, it's so prejudiced. Mm-hmm. It's so horrible. It's not a hardship that your parents can't afford to help you. Mm-hmm. You should graduate from college and be able to support yourself mm-hmm. making a fair living wage. And yet a lot of these organizations, media organizations, you'd make more money working at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I graduated and I didn't think I could afford to work at magazines and I was sitting down with an editor who went to my high school and she said, you know, Condé, they sort of treat us all like we live in a woman's dorm on the Upper East Side. And I was like, that is completely true. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was living above a McDonald's, actually. You can imagine the... Well, you made the late night <laughs> stop to McDonald's a little bit easier, right? Uh, yeah. So obviously you're thinking about it from a hiring perspective, I'm assuming. From every perspective. From hiring, from promoting, from mentoring, from sponsoring, from a perspective of finding different ways to hear voices in unusual in unusual places because something as simple as you know sending your 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 short story to the Kenyan review that's privilege mm-hmm. you know and 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 something that I've really spent the last 3 or 4 years focusing on is where does privilege manifest itself mm. and 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 this is why at, at together our tickets start at $25 so that everybody can afford to be in the room anybody who even if you have two jobs and you're a single mom if you could afford to go to a movie and have you know a slice of pizza you can afford 
to to spend twenty five dollars to to sow the seeds of transformation in your life in your community. So twenty five dollar tickets, and then also three hours as opposed to two days, which is so many events that I've gone to in my life. I can take two days out of my life. That's a privilege that I that I can afford. And what I came to realize is that's also something that a lot of people in different circumstances can't do. So you can make your stage as varied as, varied as possible, but if you're not making access, your audience is going to look like you and me. And I, ref- I, I'm, I refuse that. Mm-hmm. So what's coming? Like, tell me about Together Live this year. Well, so Together Live is a traveling is a traveling tour that uses the power of authentic storytelling with all these amazing people that we've talked about, um, sharing their stories about how they found how they found the path to purpose and how they got into action. And it's not sugarcoated. It's about addiction. It's about heartbreak. It's about resilience. It's about illness. We really talk about all the real things. But it's laughter through tears. I mean, it's light. It's, you know, you're holding hands with the person next to you, only you don't know the person next to you. And then we do exercises with the audience where they can create their own personal manifesto, begin to kind of sift through the breadcrumbs of their own lives so they can start finding their own purpose. And once they define it, we create a community through our app and through our podcast that can keep them getting into action, supported by a community that supports that. And what sort of transformation? I'm sure it ranges, but like, what are you, what are you seeing? Like, what have you observed? Well, we're seeing crazy things. First of all, I mean, the number one most used word on social media to describe the event is life changing, which isn't something that we you can't plan that. You know, it's just magic that happens in a room where people are telling the truth mm-hmm. about being face down on the bathroom floor and what happened next, about forgiving themselves, about getting comfortable with anger, about me too, about open secrets where there's no. There's no good people and bad people. It's just people trying their hardest to live the best, most impactful life that they can do. And we just, we model that. No one's going to tell you it together, how to live, what to eat, what to do. Those are all fine things. And there are many places that do that very effectively. At Together, we're just going to share our stories in hopes that you find yourself in somebody's story and that inspires you to live a more purpose-driven life. Mm, That's an amazing idea. And it's funny when you think about change, because I think for so many of us, it feels overwhelming. Like, how do you create? It takes 21 days. It's da-da-da-da. But the reality is it's like one resonant moment. That's it. I mean, our co-founder of Together, Glennon Doyle, is so eloquent at talking about you know, her own experiences. But she says all the time, we can do hard things. And the truth is, we can, but we forget. And the other thing she says is that fear cannot survive proximity, which is why I want to bring as many intergenerational, intersectional people together. Because if I hear your story, I can never look at you as other or different again. It's it's just, you know, what do you do with your enemies? Hold their babies. Mm, I love that. I've never heard that before. <laughs> it's true, though. It's just, you know, it's easier to just think, well, that person is blank. But when you hear about how their dad, you know, died when they were little and they had to their mom worked in the lunchroom whatever the story is and you go oh okay I see you differently now and I can't judge you because I feel you and then it's like a tattoo on your heart and so I mean it sounds it sounds like hyperbolic to say this but I honestly believe that storytelling is the magic honest honest storytelling is the magic salve that we need more than ever because we're so divided and we're so focused on what's different about us and even though we're like virtually connected. I think that there's an an epidemic of anxiety and loneliness and addiction. And we are more disconnected from ourselves and from each other than we've ever been before. And I think the goal of Together is to 
literally bring people together, you know, to grow together and to stay together. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said about bad intent. And I think that so often we project that on people and assume that they have bad intent when in reality it's like everyone just operating from a place of fear, right? Totally. And self-protection. Totally. I say all the time, you know, one of the tenets of together but also of my workplace is MRI, most respectful interpretation. (laughs) What if I just assume the most respectful reason for every single thing that everybody does? And what if I don't take your silence to mean something about me, but instead just send you all the love in the world? Because, you know, we all have this crazy high self-esteem, low self-esteem thing where we're like, we think we're this piece of shit that the whole world revolves around. Exactly. It's like, pick one. <laughs> pick one. Because both is very confusing. <laughs> That's amazing. But it's true. It's I mean, so true, right? So, you know, Brene Brown is so amazing at this. And she always says, don't fill in the story. Check the story. Yep. So she tells, you know, and she gives an example where, you know, you're in a meeting and you say something and your boss kind of like looks down and then rolls her eyes. And you walk out of that meeting thinking, oh, my God, my boss just thinks I'm so, you know, stepping out of line or so dumb or so inappropriate. And so the next week you spend like, you know, spiraling about this. And then the next time you go into a meeting, you're weird with your boss because should I not speak? Should I should I say something different? So now let's put that experience in a, in a closet. We've already all had some version of that experience. What Brene says is what if you just go to your boss right after the meeting and say, hey, I just want to check on something. Like when I spoke, you rolled your eyes and I just wanted to make sure that what I said wasn't upsetting or wrong. And the boss says, oh, please, I didn't even hear what you said. My son just sent me a picture of a tattoo that he just got when I told him specifically that he wasn't allowed to. And I was just so upset about that. So it's like, check the story. I mean, sometimes it might be, yeah, you shouldn't have said that. But then clear it in life time before you just spend all this time creating some larger than life story around it. Totally. Like the mythology that we make in our minds. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's only those are the things we can't control. Completely. But you can control checking the story and, and the way you tell the story. And, you know, I feel like and again, it feels makes me feel like a little bit like an old lady on this, but I'm I'm okay with being the old lady on this. But it's like, you know, the Instagram version of everybody's life where we're, you know, we're comparing our insides to other people's outsides all the time. And so what I, again, what I love about storytelling is it gives us an opportunity to do insides to insides. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's an intimate brand of communication that transcends even what the words will allow. Because it's like your heart knows, you feel it and you go, oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of thought that, but I didn't have the words to say it. It's also unedited. Totally. And I think that those filters that now sort of touch every single part of our existence, you know, and the editing that we put on ourselves on social is is incredibly problematic. I mean, I'm a terrible social media person, and I take pride in that in a way because I'm like, I don't have the energy. Me like, too. do you want to see mean- my... Please. Destroyed house after a weekend. I know, right? (laughs) My my dear friend, Danny Shapiro, has a piece in her book, Hourglass, about what doesn't go on Instagram, right? The fights, the unpaid bills, the messy kitchen. And... I don't know. For me, I that's what I want. I want to I want to I want to show you my seams. I want to see yours. And I know that once we do that, we're just going to be connected and and I'm never going to feel the same way or alone in the same way. And so I always want to do that. And 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 in and in fact, 
you know, because I do represent all these famous, amazing people, sometimes people put that shit on me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, don't do that. I'm here. I'm standing in front of you. Like, I want to connect. I want to I want to find the things we have in common. And then I also want you to teach me the things that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. And and I've been so lucky. My greatest teacher of my life has been my daughter, Hadley, who's 23 now, who had to teach me that the word ambition was okay. Because I grew up thinking ambition meant you were a bitch. Mm. But you are one of the most powerful women in publishing. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, I always felt that my power came from the fact that all I want is to do the most excellent job possible. I want to be impeccable in my steps. I never – I've had one job. So it's obviously not about ambition for me. I've never reached out to somebody who was represented by somebody else. I have, like, these rules that I have followed that are really about the highest form of integrity that I, given my limited understanding of the world, has been able to create. And I, and I don't deviate from them because I want, to, I want to be the change that I wish to see in the world. I want to always be role modeling even when it's hard, even when I'm role modeling – my guts in my hands. Yeah. More people need to do that because that's the reality. And I think it's interesting considering that you are, you know, sometimes the most powerful people are the people behind the powerful people, right? And so it's interesting that you have this ability to shape culture sort of by who gets them. And I know you would say, oh, they have, I'm just, I'm just the doula. Um, But to hold that much power and like let it Flow, I think, is a real skill. I don't know exactly where I'm going, well, but I, I but admire I, but it. I, but I recognize the sacred honor in having access to power. So don't get me wrong. Like, I recognize that if I send a book to you know somebody that works for Oprah Winfrey, that it's going to get above the it's going to get above the the noise very quickly. And so I take that responsibility very seriously. And so it's not like I'm like, oh, gee shucks, right? I. I get that there is power in in storytelling and there is power in connection and there is power in adjacency to power. And and I treat that like like the lethal and amazing and transformational thing that it is. Mm-hmm. And so I just sort of, you know, I always think like what's in the highest most impactful value of this thing. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Jennifer Rudolph Walsh in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. If your house is anything like the Lunan Fismer house, your weekday morning routine looks something like this. Drag yourself out of bed and into the shower, coax the kids out of bed and into their chairs at the kitchen table, make them some breakfast they probably won't eat, pack some lunches, and then pick out the cleanest clothes you can find for them. And then somewhere in there, squeeze in a few minutes to do the same thing for yourself. And throughout this all, you're probably thinking about how the getting dressed process could and should be so much simpler. The Rowenta handheld steamer changed all of this for me. The compact, no condensation steamer refreshes clothes in minutes, no ironing boards or complex settings required. And since it works on all fabrics, it's just as useful on nights when I get to hang up my mom hat and put on my silk jumpsuit for a dinner out. I just lay the clothes on my bed or leave them on the hanger and go over it with the 1,600-watt steam flow. It works both vertically and horizontally, so no twisting and turning to get the teeniest creases out. It's funny how much easier it is to get dressed in the morning when you're not casting aside favorites because they just happen to be wrinkled. You can get your hands on a Rowenta handheld steamer of your own on goop.com. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Jennifer Rudolph Walsh. I would imagine knowing you and knowing who you work with that like 
that that's not necessarily the bottom that line. That's some bigger context of life. Like when you speak about purpose and when you, I think you seem like someone who's probably been in the flow of life yeah. since your first job. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's something that obviously we share, right, which is a belief in the universe and then mm-hmm. the fact that the universe is always is always trying to communicate to us. We just make it very difficult because we're so busy wanting to go the direction that we have decided is the right direction. And so through my life, I've had to sort of learn to let go of the form, mm-hmm. you know, and, and really just try to hear the signs and listen to listen to life. I mean, I had a drink with somebody last night who told me that she'd been hit in the head four times over the last year. She's finally now taking a leave of absence from work because she's concussed. And it's like, four times? Are you out of your mind, lady? Like, how many times does the universe have to hit you in the head before you wake up and say, what do you need to tell me? What do I need to hear? And so I always make it a practice to hear on the first time. You know, it's just like, hear when it's a feather. Don't wait for the brick. And so in that... I can tell when something, when I'm off my path, I can tell when, you know, my person, my personal purpose, which I've honed over many years, is to shine the light forward so people feel less alone, connected, elevated, and healed. So I know what I'm here to do. When do you know when you're off the path? When shit goes upside down. When I'm constantly sick, when I'm in a fight with three people, when nobody understands what I'm trying to do, when the door is never left where I left it. it just The bull just keeps moving to a place where I can't find it. And it's very obvious to me, like, oh, stop, look, and listen. What do I not want to see? What do I not want to know right now? Mm. And sometimes it's I don't want to know that it's, not a, that it's not a match with me and this person or with this story. Or I don't want to know that my idea is not actually viable. Or I don't want to know that... Somebody who I put my heart and soul into doesn't return that love to me. And, you know, I, I do believe in my heart of hearts that rejection is God's protection. But sometimes I will resist that like a, you know, like a like an animal because I just I want I want what I love to love me. Mm-hmm. And it just sometimes doesn't go that way. And then you have to sit back and go, OK, well, what's this meant to tell me? What am I meant to learn from this process? And then, you know, next right step. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you think of life as a school and you think of everything that you encounter as, as one more lesson on your path, I mean, you've had some incredible teachers along the way through just by virtue of working with these people and yes. being a thought follower. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Leading thought follower. <laughs> thought follower. But like, when did that start? I will. I mean, when I look at my eighth grade yearbook, it's like, dear Jennifer, thank you so much for encouraging me to keep a journal. You know, it really changed my life. Dear Jennifer, thank you for encouraging me to tell my mom how I was really feeling about, you know, my sexuality. So I think that it's something that's always been in me. I just love to hear people's stories and I love to connect them with other people who are having the same experience as them. And I, you know, when somebody tells me something, I just... I'll remember it forever. I mean, I don't know my right from my left. I mean, I, I'm 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 hardly like above average intelligence in many ways, but in this way, it's just you know, it's just this gift, and I've had it my whole life. I just I just thought in the Jewish you know the Yiddish way, I just thought I was the yenta talabenta. I didn't think I'd ever make a living doing it, but I just knew I loved to collect like authentic stories and to help people remember the best of themselves through remembering their past stories and bringing back to them bringing them back to them at times when they needed it. And so that was my that was my thing and then one of my breadcrumbs of my purpose one of the questions I ask people at the together tour when they're trying to define their own purpose is can you remember a time when something that you thought was ordinary about yourself somebody 
told you that that thing that you thought was ordinary was actually extraordinary. Mm. And uh, and for me, that story is so clear. I was in seventh grade. I was in Mr. Compensanto's math class. I walked in late as usual with like my handful of excuses that I was ready to give. And he said, stop right there, Jennifer Rudolph. I know you're famous for having a way with words and convincing people to do whatever you want them to do, but that's not going to work with me. And all I heard was famous for having a way with words. It was like he'd literally taken a wand and anointed me as special at something. And I always thought that was the worst part of me. Mm. And he told me that I was famous for it in my little, you know, Waverly Park Middle School. And so that was the first time that I realized that something that people had told me was bad about me was something that I could actually use. Mm and to help people and to shine the light through people. And that was it. I was like, oh, okay. Because all I'd ever been told was you're not living up to your potential. And I always thought, well, that's fine, but what does that mean? Like, I, you know, it's like I was like that saggy bag of the elephant. You know, I, you know, one, two, three, kick. I would gladly improve myself if I only knew how. <laughs> like, I really – and I think that's one of the reasons that I've been so focused on – on on consciousness and awakening because I don't like the term self-help because, frankly, I feel like we've all helped ourselves enough. Mm-hmm. I feel like if self-help worked as a category, there wouldn't be an entire, you know, bookstore full of books. But I think that there is a, a kind of awakening and a kind of consciousness that's presented through through storytelling and through social science and through expertise. That's all, It's a category unto itself. And, I mean, self-help is all we have, so that's where they put a lot of these books. But that's not how I look at it. I look at it as like shining the light for people and giving people the tools for long-term transformation over time. It's it's I think of self-help too as as listening and it's in that moment it's like you that that resonance of that man like almost as a, almost channeling or defining who you are and I feel like if we all do it if we all could take a second and do a better job of that not only of listening to each other but also of listening to what the universe is trying to tell us and looking for the lesson. Yeah, I agree. But also I want to say to that, and I want to say that, and also be careful with the words you use to describe other people because they matter. And I know with my kids, I, you know, one of my phrases is catch them being good. And so whenever I see one of my children advocating for somebody else or figuring something out that was initially very hard, I always underline, that's so you. You know, Griffin, you're the king of turning the ship around. Hadley, you are the most fierce advocate. Wyatt, I've never seen a more original thinker. So that I can start only true things, though, because kids can smell bullshit from a million miles away. But I catch them being good, and then I put a language around it. Mm, Interesting. And that's an honest language. It has to be an honest language. But it's underlined. Mm -hmm. It's bold-faced. Yeah. And it's specific. It's not hyperbole. Completely. We've talked, that's come up several times with different people on the podcast, just this idea, one of just what's how, overpraise and, and you are a genius, like things that are just categorically not true. Right. But like you are an original thinker, like that's the most fascinating way to think of that. Or how did you think of that? Yeah, Even completely. That. Right. Yeah. And, and, and again, something that I'm, that Glennon Doyle says that's so true is that, you know, we think of our of our role as parents as being trying to keep our kids from from pain. But the truth is, you know, our role is really to teach them that they're strong enough to deal with pain and to let them learn how to walk through, you know, the fire of whatever their life is is showing them. And I think, you know, a lot with even, you know, over medication of children, all of these things. And I believe me, I've had every personal experience that I can speak from with three kids. But what I've realized is that 
you know, it takes us so long ourselves to learn how to deal with anxiety and stress and failure and disappointment. And that the, those are some of the strongest gifts we can give our kids mm-hmm. is is giving them the tools to deal with things when they don't go their way. You know, it's 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 so necessary. And a lot of these kids, I mean, are coming home from college in droves because they get to college and basically they have been coddled their whole entire lives and they get there and, and stuff isn't going their way and their parents can't swoop in and they're learning to deal with, with disappointment and anxiety and stress and eating and and planning for the first time in their whole lives and they're woefully unprepared. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of tools and to quote, Another client, but it's the very Michael's Phil Stutz, there is no exoneration from pain and hard work. And that is the, one of the defining fallacies of our life. And I think something we agree. put on celebrities, we put on people who are wealthy. It's this idea that, like, you achieve the state of, of no pain and right. no hard work, which is right. a lie. Completely. I mean, I... I, uh, my client, our client, Justin Timberlake, who is just an extraordinary person, and he's doing an amazing book on creative process. But he tells a story about how, when he was in his first movie, how some reporter said to him, you know, it's just so annoying. You know, you just everything's so easy for you. Your boy band is number one. Then you're a single artist and you're number one. And then you, you decide to be an actor and, like, you're nominated for an Academy Award. Like, it's just so damn easy for you. And what Justin said is, while you're asleep, I'm practicing. While you're out with your friends, I'm practicing. While you're on vacation, I'm practicing. He said the number one hardest job part of my job is making what I do look easy to you. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. It's like making it look easy and having it be easy are two totally different things. And something that I think people sometimes misunderstand is that going with the flow doesn't mean that you don't prepare like hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's true. So. So you, you do all the work. You do every single solitary thing. And, I, and I, this is one of the things I say often. There is no shortcut to excellence. Mm-hmm. You know, every single step, impeccable in your steps. But then it, when you've done it all, it's like that commercial set it and forget it. At a certain point, you've done all the things. And then you have to, and then you have to wait for the response from the universe or from the person. So speaking of flow, speaking of being impeccable, thinking of what you've achieved in your career. So was... Like, did you have to fight your way or has this been just a function of just block and tackle, hard work? How did you arrive where you are? I don't think of it as an arrival. I'm still in process. <laughs> you know, I'm still incredibly I'm still incredibly full and excited and amped up and, and I, I'm constantly following the unfolding. So for example, I had terrible stage fright, which I know is really hard to imagine. Impossible to MCing. imagine. No, it was a very strange thing. It wasn't that I cared about how other people thought of me. It was that I felt like I couldn't have my intimate connection if I was standing on a stage in front of a thousand people. So for years, I, along with our CEO, Ari Emanuel, and our chief of communications, Christian Muirhead, would create these retreats for WME that became famous, which is really the seeds of my love for live events came during that period of time because our company would get to see these amazing speakers from Elon Musk to Sheryl Sandberg. You know, it was Bill Clinton, Al Gore. It was just extraordinary. And I wanted everybody to be able to to experience. It. You know, I'm constantly like one trying to democratize every experience. It's like my that's kind of like my little underdog in me. But occasionally I would need to go up on the stage and introduce somebody. And literally I would have a stomachache for an hour before over something as stupid as, you know, please welcome Marcus Buckingham. I mean, it was just made no sense. He was my friend. But I just wanted to make sure that I honored him with my words and that I said enough. And so it would just make me very anxious. And then when we were about to take together on tour for the first time, we're going into our third year this fall, but so three three years ago, it just didn't make sense to pay somebody else to be the MC when I was going to be there anyway. 
So I just stepped into it for necessity purposes. And I realized that, oh, I can just still be myself. Mm. And I could be the I could be the audience stand in because I think a lot of us are thought followers out there. And they like to see somebody who's followed the thoughts all the way to the stage. Mm. And I can sort of normalize that experience because, I mean, I, you know, I'm just listening. Just I'm just asking questions. You know, I'm just following. So so that's that's an evolution of my process. And, and I don't and I don't. Have I had to fight? I guess it's a fight, but I don't see it that way. You know, it's just, you know, the only, for many years, I was the only woman in the boardroom. So, and, and I was the only one in New York. So I had to push into the TV, which is a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. So I've had to learn things that I didn't know I needed, like patience, like making sure that people feel like they can finish their sentence before I speak. Because I think really fast. And sometimes that makes people feel like they're not being heard. So I've had to, my, I'm, I'm an onion. You know, it's been peeled layers after layers after layers. And I'm, and I'm, you know, it's just, a friend of mine says broken, you know, it's just, it's growth at the speed of pain. So I've, I've grown and it's hurt like hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now thought followership needs to become a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Well, let's, let's make yeah, it let's, a thing. Yeah, now, now there's two of us. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining our conversation with Jennifer Rudolph Walsh today. I found her point about thought followers really poignant, and I'm glad to know she's out there amplifying so many important voices. You can learn more about Jennifer's multicultural touring event at TogetherLive.com. Now it's Ask Me Anything time. Jessica wants to know, what Olympic sport do you fantasize that you could compete in? So maybe the luge because when I was a child all summer I would live in Williamstown Massachusetts where my mother would do plays and um, there was a ride called the Alpine Slide at the local mountain there and I was obsessed with it and it was my favorite thing to do was race my best friend Mary down the Alpine Slide and so I think I think not only could I fantasize about competing in the luge, but maybe I could try one one day, albeit really slowly. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.